0: Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com wordsforgranted. For just a buck a month, which is less than what we all pay for bad cups of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. The next Patreon episode will cover the continued evolution of Noah Webster's dictionary into the 20th and 21st centuries. For not that much more than what we all pay for a bad cup of coffee, I'll even send you your own Words for Granted mug. If Patreon's not your thing but you'd still like to help keep this show on the road, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me wordsforgranted. Alright let's get on to today's episode the 8th and last part in our series on American English. Last time, we explored the early works and spelling reforms of Noah Webster. Today, we're going to look at the story behind Webster's most famous contribution to American English. That contribution is, of course, his dictionary. You'll recall that Webster's earlier works strongly advocated for the legitimacy of American English that is, a distinctly American variety of English that was completely divorced from the rules and conventions of English spoken in Britain. Put in the most idealistic of terms, if the people of America were now governed by their own laws, why shouldn't their language be governed by its own laws as well? Fair enough, but without a distinctly American dictionary, American English had no governing laws to follow. So, in 1828 Noah Webster rose to the occasion and published his now-legendary American Dictionary of the English Language. It contained almost 70,000 entries, almost half of which had never been defined by a dictionary before. These newly included words were drawn from the jargon of arts and sciences, history, the Bible, colloquialisms, and Americanisms. More on the implications of these last two categories later on in this episode. As its name implies, the American Dictionary was an explicit attempt to create an authoritative tome on the usage of English in America. Unlike the British Samuel Johnson's Dictionary, which at the time was the leading dictionary in the English-speaking world, the American Dictionary of the English Language was written by an American for Americans. This 1828 text would go on to become the basis of all future dictionaries bearing Webster's name, including those published by the Merriam-Webster Company after Webster's death. However, you might be surprised to learn that the American dictionary wasn't Webster's first dictionary. Twenty-two years earlier, he published the Compendious Dictionary of the English Language. Although the Compendious Dictionary contained about half as many entries as the American Dictionary and has largely been forgotten outside of lexicographical and historical circles, in my opinion, it's actually a more groundbreaking work of lexicography than its better-known successor. After the following discussion, I think it'll be clear to you why. In the lengthy preface to the Compendious Dictionary, Webster discusses the motivation behind the work's composition and publication. Contrary to what you might expect, it's not a politicized Declaration of Independence on behalf of American English. In fact, he only mentions America once in passing. According to Webster, the compendious dictionary was written in order to improve upon the errors made by earlier dictionaries. The preface is a chock full of passionate rhetoric that blatantly exposes the scholarly flaws in the works of Samuel Johnson and Robert Louth. The latter of whom was an influential British grammarian. For starters, in Webster's view, both Johnson and Louth had overlooked and underestimated Old English's Germanic roots in their assessment of the fundamental principles of modern English. On the other hand, Webster had rigorously studied Old English for 22 years over the course of his research for his dictionary. Drawing on this knowledge, he points out the contrived and illogical nature of many of Johnson's and Louth's prescribed usages and definitions of modern English words. Let's take a look at how he refutes their ideas regarding the words each and either. Johnson's dictionary claims that the word each properly denotes either one of two things, though he provides no etymological or usage-based evidence to support his view. To be fair, he also suggests that each could refer to, quote, every of any number of things, end quote, but he adds the caveat that, quote, this sense is rare except in poetry, end quote. Webster, on the contrary, indicates that this second sense is neither rare nor restricted to poetry, but is actually the more commonly used of the two definitions. He writes, quote, each has no appropriate reference to two more than it does to 10,000, end quote, and then cites several examples proving his point from Old English, Middle English, and Modern English sources. Regarding the word either, Louth claims, quote, Either is often used improperly for each. Each signifies both taken separately. Either properly signifies only the one or the other, taken disjunctively. Like Johnson, Louth doesn't say anything about where he gets this notion from. To disprove this, Webster again turns to a handful of examples drawn from the English written record, revealing that, historically, either has never had a strict signification of only the one or the other taken disjunctively, and it has been used interchangeably with each for centuries. Considering our lengthy discussion of spelling reform in the last episode, it's worth taking a look at Webster's prefatory remarks on orthography. You'll recall that orthography means the rules and conventions used to write a language. In Webster's earlier works, his main argument for spelling reform is for the sake of simplified orthography, thus making learning to read and write the English language much easier, particularly for immigrants to America who haven't learned English as their first language. In spite of this egalitarian pro-American spirit regarding American English, many Americans initially perceived Webster as a corrupter of the English language due to his advocacy of the spelling reforms. In the Compendious Dictionary's prefatory chapter on orthography, Webster still argues for spelling reform, but he changes the basis of his argument, sort of. Drawing upon copious etymological evidence, he argues that On the contrary, centuries of careless writers before him have already corrupted the language, but no one was paying attention. Instead of being corruptive, Webster claims that his spelling reforms are actually restorative. Let's take a look at a few examples to see what he means by this. Here's what he has to say about his preferred O-R ending in words such as honor and color, as opposed to the O-U-R ending advocated by Johnson. Long quote. We ought to reject the letter U from honor, favor, candor, error, and others of this class, Under the Norman princes, when every effort of royal authority was exerted to crush the Saxons and obliterate their language, the Norman French was the only language of the English courts and legal proceedings, and the Latin words which, at that period, were introduced into use in England came clothed with the French livery. Um, Side note, for those who might not know, the French Norman conquest of England was the historical event that caused many French words, along with French orthography, to enter English. Okay, Webster continues, quote, At the same time, to preserve a trace of their originals, the O of the Latin honor, spelled H-O-N-O-R, as well as the U of the French word, spelled H-O-N-E-U-R, was retained in the terminating syllable. Hence, for some centuries, our language was disfigured with a class of mongrels, splendor, S-P-L-E-N-D-O-U-R, inferior... I-N-F-E-E-R-I-O-U-R, superior, S-U-P-E-R-I-O-U-R, author, A-U-T-H-O-U-R, and the like, which are neither Latin nor French, nor calculated to exhibit the English pronunciation. Johnson, in reverence to usage, retained this vidious orthography without regarding the palpable absurdity of inserting U in primitive words when it must be omitted in their derivatives, superiority, inferiority, and the like. For no person ever wrote S-U-P-E-R-I-O-U-R-I-T-Y or I-N-F-E-R-I-O-U-R-I-T-Y, end quote. And here's what he has to say about his preferred C ending in words such as music and public, as opposed to the C-K ending advocated by Johnson. Again, long quote. The use of K at the end of words after C deserves notice, as it affords a remarkable proof of the corruption of language by means of heedless writers. Johnson remarks that C, having no determinate sound, according to English orthography, never ends a word. Had this eminent critic examined ancient authorities with more care, he would have found the reverse of his affirmation to be the truth. The practice, in his time, of closing all words with K after C, on which he founded his observation, was a Norman innovation. Till after the conquest, C was used to express the power of K, as in the Latin language, and instead of not terminating any English word, as Johnson alleges, it terminated Every word where the power of K occurred, as in bock, b o c, which meant book, folk, f o l k, which meant folk, and week, w i c, which meant wick. In a volume of Saxon history written in the 12th century, the letter K is not found in ten words. To add K after C in such as music, public, republic, nitric, camphoric, and majestic is beyond measure absurd, for both have the same power, having been formed from the same original character." So, as we can see from these very long and insightful quotes, rather than arguing for spelling reform on the basis of simplicity for simplicity's sake, which, by the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with, in the Compendious Dictionary, Webster argues for spelling reforms on the basis of simplicity for etymology's sake. Practically speaking, I don't think that the preservation of etymology in and of itself is a good reason to spell a word one way or another, but Webster's arguments are really a genius deflection of all his opponents who accused him of corrupting the language. Before we move on to Webster's 1828 American Dictionary, there's one more landmark thing you should know about the Compendious Dictionary. It was the first English dictionary to recognize J and V as actual letters. As some of you may know, the letter J evolved as a variation of the letter I, and the letter V evolved as a variation of the letter U. For those of you who don't know, unfortunately the full stories of J and V are beyond the scope of this episode, though I did cover the evolution of J in an earlier episode of this podcast. For our purposes, all you need to know is that J and V didn't start appearing in English print until the late medieval period so quite late into the history of written English. Before then, the J sound was represented by I, and the V sound was represented by U. Even after the distinct letters J and V were introduced into the language, their uniform usage took a long time to catch on. In Samuel Johnson's dictionary, words beginning with J and V are listed under I and U. Although he uses the letters J and V in his spellings, he doesn't give them their own alphabetical category. The first entries under the letter I are I, the personal pronoun, and then jabber, jackal, iambic, jangle, ibis, and ice. Similarly, the first entries under U are a long list of VA words such as vacancy, vacant, valley, and vat. It's not until ubiquity and then utter that we get the first words that actually start with a U sound as we know it. In an editorial note, Johnson himself acknowledges that this is a bit unwieldy, but the, quote, old custom, end quote, prevents him from distinguishing V and J as letters unto themselves. Sometimes you just have to let the old customs go when they no longer work, which is what Webster thought. In the Compendious Dictionary, J and V are given their own place in the dictionary heading, setting a new trend for subsequent English dictionaries published on both sides of the Atlantic from that point forward. But wait, that's not all regarding new headings in the dictionary. The Compendious Dictionary was also the first English dictionary to list an entry under the letter X. That word is zebek, which is a, quote, small three-masted vessel in the Mediterranean, end quote. I definitely didn't know that, but now I do. Regarding X, Samuel Johnson wrote in his dictionary, quote, X is a letter which, though found in Saxon words, begins no word in the English language, End quote. This, of course, is no longer true, and it probably wasn't strictly true in Johnson's day either. X may not begin any native English words, but it does begin a handful of loan words and technical science terms. By the time Webster published the American dictionary, he upped the number of X initial words from 1 to 13. It contained well known and useful words such as xanthogene, xiphoid, and zero, colli- <laughs> zero but no xylophone. Speaking of the American dictionary, let's move our discussion forward to Webster's second lexicographical work. But first, A word from today's sponsor. Words for Granted is a proud member of the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Do you consider yourself a lifelong learner? Do you enjoy learning at your own pace, anytime, anywhere? If so, then you should really check out The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus offers unlimited video access to academic lecture series by some of the world's leading professors. This is college-level learning, but without the pressure of homework, grades, and, right, student loans. With the Great Courses Plus app, you can stream or download their entire video library onto your phone. While the guy next to you on the train is playing video games on his phone, you can be catching up on that college course that you always wish you had taken. Right now, I'm working my way through the Language Families of the World course taught by John McWhorter, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Did you know that there are 800 languages spoken in New Guinea alone? Or that linguists believe that all languages evolved from the click languages of Africa? The Language Families of the World course is a great complement to a lot of the things we talk about here on Words for Granted, so I really hope you check it out. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering listeners of this show one free month of unlimited access to their entire library. To claim your free month, you'll need to sign up through my special URL thegreatcoursesplus.com slash words. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash words. Really, it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to share this deal with you, so don't miss out. thegreatcoursesplus.com slash words. And back to our regularly scheduled programming. Noah Webster published the American Dictionary in 1828. He was 70 years old, and finally, he'd written his magnum opus. If that's the case, though, why did I just spend so much time talking about the Compendious Dictionary? Well, as you may have suspected by now, the truth is that many of the hallmark lexicographical innovations often attributed to the American Dictionary actually occurred in the Compendious Dictionary first, and it's important, I think, to give credit where credit is due. A successful pop linguistics book that I won't mention by name says that the American Dictionary was the first dictionary to give J and V placement in a dictionary heading, but as we've just seen, that's not true. I've also read in so many sources that the American Dictionary of the English Language was the first American Dictionary. Not only was the American Dictionary of the English Language preceded by the Compendious Dictionary, but the first American Dictionary that is, the first dictionary published in America, wasn't even written by Webster. Technically, the first American dictionary was written by a forgotten man by the name of Samuel Johnson, which coincidentally is also the name of the British author of Johnson's dictionary. Zero percent relation, 100 percent confusion. Given the lasting impact of the American dictionary, these are understandable mistakes in the grand scheme of history, but they are mistakes nonetheless. With that said, the reason why the American dictionary is Webster's magnum opus is because it's basically the compendious dictionary on massive steroids. Furthermore, it would go on to become the text upon which all future editions of Webster's dictionaries are based. With 70,000 entries, it was the largest dictionary of its time, outdoing Johnson's dictionary by almost 30,000 words. The first edition of the American Dictionary was sold in two enormous volumes for the price of $20. You might think that that sounds like a great deal, but with a cumulative inflation rate of 2,589.98% since 1828, that is equal to about 540 bucks in 2019. Within a few years, the price of the dictionary dropped to $15, which is about 400 bucks in 2019. The next time you look up a word on any of the hundreds of dictionaries available online for free, consider for a moment just how much the times have changed. But in spite of its steep price, the American Dictionary was an instant bestseller, right? Well no, not exactly. Part of the reason for its drop in price was due to the fact that initially it didn't sell very well. The equivalent of hundreds of dollars is a lot of money to spend on a dictionary, so I suppose that's understandable. But, commercial success aside, was it considered a monumental success by literary critics and other members of the intelligentsia? You might think so, given the contemporary success of Webster's Blueback Speller, which we discussed in the last episode, but the reality was that Webster's Dictionary, the work for which he's most famous today, had a real hard time getting off the ground during his own lifetime. The first printing of the American Dictionary consisted of 2,500 copies, and that took eight years to sell out. Even for 19th century standards, that's not a flattering statistic. Like the compendious dictionary before it, the American dictionary received backlash from language purists who a. didn't like its spelling reforms, and b. didn't like its inclusion of vulgar Americanisms. To be clear, we're not talking about dirty words here. We're talking about words like skunk, squash, hickory and pow-wow, new words that had evolved in America to describe the unique flora, fauna, and cultural experiences of the New World. Scandalous, I know. While the American Dictionary's lexical inclusivity was radically progressive for its time, it was simultaneously a very conservative work. These alleged vulgar Americanisms were juxtaposed against an array of 19th century Christian definitions of words such as marriage, nature, sodomy, and many more. The American Dictionary defines marriage as, quote, The union of a man and woman for life, a contract both civil and religious, till death shall separate them. Marriage was instituted by God himself for the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, for promoting domestic felicity, and for securing the maintenance and education of children, end quote. It defines nature as, quote, in a general sense, whatever is made or produced, a word that comprehends all the works of God." End quote. Given this definition of nature, it then defines sodomy as quote, "...a crime against nature." End quote. According to a handful of conservative American Christian groups online, the 1828 edition of the American Dictionary contains the true American definitions of these words, but As listeners of this podcast know, the notion of words having true meanings is a diluted notion indeed. Even if you do view these 1828 definitions as true, that's fine, but you have to admit that they represent a particular worldview that doesn't apply to everyone, and the whole point of a dictionary is to provide the general public with widely accepted usages. While Webster's 1828 definitions may have represented the widely accepted usages of these words during his lifetime, It's reasonable, in my opinion, to say that they're no longer suited for the dictionary in 2019. After Webster's first edition finally sold out in 1836, eight years after its publication, he spent the remainder of the decade revising the American Dictionary's 70,000 definitions, not to mention adding a few thousand new ones. These revisions were the basis of the dictionary's second edition, published in 1841. In 1843, he finished revisions on the second edition's appendices, and then a few days later, Noah Webster passed away. He was 83 years old, and he considered the work on his largely unsuccessful dictionary unfinished. Although the publication of the second edition of his dictionary plunged him into debt for the remainder of his life, Webster probably didn't consider himself an entirely unsuccessful man. He actually had an impressive resume of accomplishments that i haven't even mentioned in addition to writing the largest english dictionary the world had ever seen he also was an editor for the federalist a lawyer a successful lobbyist for american copyright laws a founder of amherst college and author of a handful of influential school books most notably the blueback speller however The combination of a hefty price tag and a climate of linguistic conservatism prevented his dictionary from becoming the authority on American English that he dreamed it could be. Except, as we know, it eventually did become the authority on American English he dreamed it could be. The name Noah Webster is basically synonymous with American Dictionary. So, how the heck did that ever happen? After Webster's death, his family sold the remaining unbound sheets of the second edition to the J.S. & C. Adams firm in Amherst, Massachusetts. In 1844, J.S. & C. printed a small run of copies priced at $15 each, but that $15 price tag still proved to be too steep for the dictionary to sell. However, here's a fun little tidbit. The poet Emily Dickinson acquired one of these J.S. C. Adams copies, and apparently consulted it as her sole lexicographical resource over the course of her life. Unable to turn the profit they had hoped for, in 1845, J.S. C. sold the rights to the second edition to a publishing house based in Worcester County, Massachusetts. This company was called G.N.C. Merriam, named after its founding brothers George and Charles. And yes, this is the Merriam of Merriam-Webster. G&C Merriam also negotiated a contract with Webster's family for the sole rights to the American Dictionary from here on out. Webster's family had virtually given up on trying to cash in on the dictionary because, well, shortly after Webster published the American Dictionary, a competing dictionary written by Joseph Emerson Wooster had appeared on the market. Now, if the mention of yet another dictionary this late into the episode just made you groan, I understand. Joseph Emerson Worcester's various dictionaries published from the 1830s through the 1860s play an ironic and crucial part in the eventual success of Webster's Dictionary, which would ultimately become the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. In short, here's what happened. Worcester, who actually served as an assistant to Webster on the first edition of the American Dictionary, published a dictionary called the Comprehensive Pronouncing and Explanatory English Dictionary in 1830. Unlike Webster's Dictionary, Worcester's Dictionary stuck to the traditional British spellings and promoted the pronunciations common in London at that time. It gave the linguistic conservatives just what they wanted, and it was sold at a cheaper price. Both of these factors contributed to its initial success over Webster's Dictionary. After the Merriams acquired the rights to the American Dictionary, The marketing-savvy brothers engaged in a public propaganda battle against Worcester's dictionaries that would later come to be known as the Dictionary Wars. Both GNC Merriam and Worcester's publishers advertised their respective dictionaries as the authority on American English. This dispute lasted for decades, playing out in newspaper articles and advertising campaigns. Prominent politicians, intellectuals, and even local boards of education are on record taking one side or the other. At the height of the Dictionary War, G&C Merriam refused to do business with bookshops that carried Worcester's books. They were really in it to win it. When Joseph Worcester passed away in 1865, the Merriam brothers continued their propaganda war with full zeal. The war gradually turned in their favor, as Worcester's publisher failed to keep up their side of the fight after Worcester's death. By the late 1870s, Webster's Dictionary had finally begun to outsell its competitor. In the decades that followed, more and more Americans also began respecting American English as a legitimate form of English in its own right. Was this change in public opinion influenced by the commercial and cultural ascendancy of Webster's Dictionary, or was it the other way around? I'm not exactly sure, but it's probably a combination of both factors. Whatever the case, Webster's dictionary may well have fallen into obscurity without the Merriam brothers' tireless marketing efforts year after year, decade after decade. By extension, so may have Noah Webster himself. Sure, his blueback speller had continued success after his death, but that success wouldn't have sustained him as a household name in the 21st century. It's the legacy of his groundbreaking dictionary that keeps his name alive. We could continue this episode well into the 20th and 21st centuries, covering the various new editions of Webster's Dictionary and why they're important, but these topics go far beyond the scope of Noah Webster's own life. As I mentioned earlier, I'll be covering the evolution and impact of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary on our modern world in the next Patreon episode, which should be available in under two weeks. So if you haven't heard enough about American dictionaries yet, you know what to do patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is where you can sign up to support the show and gain access to all of the bonus episodes that I post. All right, that wraps up our series on American English. I hope you found these episodes valuable. I know I sure as heck learned a lot while putting them together. This series also allowed me to break the established formula of the show where I look at one word and track its evolution over time. I felt free to cover broader, more thematic topics. So my question to you is, do you like this slightly adjusted format? If you liked these part-biographical, part-linguistic Noah Webster episodes, I could do a whole series on significant people in the history of English. Or I could even cover language philosophers, for instance. So let me know what you think at wordsforgranted@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, I'm at Words for Granted, and I'm also on Facebook as Words for Granted. All right. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.